Hello, and welcome to the new PE Live podcast series, Energy Oracles. I'm Paul Hicken, Editor-in-Chief at PE Media Network, and I'm joined by the inimitable Jeff Curry, Head of Commodity Research at Goldman Sachs, who really needs no introduction. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Paul. If I could start off with what you've seen with the bank crisis, a lot of analysts have revised down their expectations around oil prices. Where do you see Brent this year and next? And where do you see the risk to this forecast? I think it's important to look at the market in the context of the recent financial turmoil, because there's two questions that need to be addressed. Is financial contagion into commodity markets in physical contagion? Let's begin with the first one, financial contagion. What do I mean by that? At the core, what occurred here was a VAR shock, stemming from volatility in the rates markets as traders began to reassess the forward path of Fed funds rates. The volatility in the rate marks initially didn't spill over into commodities. However, commodities were the most vulnerable because of a high amount of leverage that is used in these markets. Plus, they had a very poor start to the year, so they didn't have great returns to begin with. As a result, they were the next most impacted markets among all the different asset classes. Initially, oil traded down to around $80 a barrel in line with what was going on in metals markets and the rest of the commodity space. However, once we breached $80 a barrel, it triggered a negative gamut effect, which is essentially you have many dealers who are short the put options to the producers. And as oil prices go through the big strikes at 80, 75, and 70, it makes the dealers have to sell a lot of oil. Hence why this downdraft was so vicious. It was a significant deleveraging event. And it created a reduction of, so far, the most recent data show a 22% decline in investor positioning. But I want to emphasize the 12% decline in oil was financially driven. That was that financial contagion. Physically, the demand indicators are all still very positive. So while we've seen financial contagion, we have not seen physical contagion. And when we look at time spreads in oil, it's remarkable that they remained in backwardation throughout the sell-off, which is telling you that the physical market did not drive this pullback. Also, you have refining margins. They widened. Physical grade differentials remained relatively stable. So everything points to a much more stable physical and real activity environment. So how could it spill over into the real world? It has to come through the U.S. banking channel and through a reduction in lending because deposits flee to either the money markets or the large banks, and that forces a reduction in lending. Now, the question is, does this hit the demand side or the supply side? More likely, it's going to hit the supply side longer term than the demand side. Why? Because these regional banks have specialized knowledge in their ability to underwrite industrial-type loans as opposed to consumer loans that are much more homogenous that a, a national, one of the big banks, can actually underwrite. So the impact here is skewed more towards the supply side than the demand side. But I think the key message here is that would be relatively small. That's often to the future. The key message here is that this was 
primarily financial contagion, and at least not yet has it become physical contagion. Where do you see oil prices going and what are the risks to that forecast? Well, this event led us to reduce our end-of-year target from 100 to 94 and our 12-month target to $97 a barrel from 100 The reason why had more to do with the scarring effects of this event on the willingness of investors to come back to the space. You saw some of the headlines in the last couple of days, just how sharply down many of these investors in oil were hearing from this event. That type of scarring historically takes a long time to recover from. You know, in terms of this downgrade that we just did, put it in perspective, we only raised into December 23 inventories by 7 million barrels. For all practical purpose, that's rounding error. So fundamentally, we did not have a significant change. However, given the fact that you have long-dated oil prices got down as low as $66 a barrel on a Brent basis, and you have you know substantial reduction in the front end, you know I like to say you need to re-lever to reflate. And we've been delevering, which deflates the market. So that's the core of the downgrade. But on a fundamental perspective, now we did see a big revision upwards to Chinese demand. However, that was offset by more supply, more supply coming out of Russia. They just did not reduce output like what was indicated in early March. We still believe they're going to reduce it, but we just think it's taking longer. And as a result, you're starting from a higher inventory level than what we thought, which basically offsets the improvement in Chinese demand. I think the key message here is our end of December inventories are not radically different from what they were before. We still expect to see inventories draw this June, which should be that physical catalyst to get these markets to trade higher. However, we do believe it's going to be a relatively slow process to get the money back into these markets. And that historically is just the case when you go through one of these very scarring events. One last point about the negative gamma. While they work to the downside, they also work to the upside. Once you get the catalyst to start to push the market up through those strikes, they can move rather quickly. I think you can move back up to 80 relatively quick. Once we get above 80, we're going to be back into that same grind that we were since the beginning of the year to be waiting for those inventory draws that will occur in June. I think the, the key message here, we remain bullish. We just think it's going to take longer to get there. In fact, the title of the piece was a longer road to higher prices. And to think about still the threat of demand destruction and higher interest rates, how much they act as a cap on oil prices. What is your take on the adage that the cure for high prices is high prices? The answer to that question has changed tremendously in the last week and a half with the banking crisis. You know, the view that we had going into that crisis is we called it a macro stalemate. You had a strong China creating strong demand on one side, and then you had a persistent Fed on the other side that was offsetting that through its inflationary fighting by raising rates. However, given the events of the last couple of weeks, the Fed has now introduced financial stability into their reaction function. They're not just solely focused on inflation. They have to balance that against the financial strain that higher interest rates are creating on the banks. Now, what does this mean to oil prices? It creates a 
more dovish backdrop. And we saw that with the FOMC announcement yesterday. Now, in terms of historically, you know, talk about what happened in 06, 07. Very similar period to today. The Fed just raised rates 450 basis points from 05 through 06. And they stopped in, it was June or July of 06. Ironically, it's essentially the same amount that occurred before yesterday. We're at 475 now as of yesterday. What happened after that 450 basis points of rate hikes? Do you remember the names? AmeriQuest, New Century, Countrywide. Those were all the regional mortgage lenders. That was a little bit different in the sense that the higher rates hurt the subprime lenders because the collateral value of the houses went down. But it was the same dynamic. We know when you get up to those types of interest rate levels, it starts to create some financial stress. Eventually, uh, you had to see the Fed go to a much more dovish stance and eventually cut in 2007. But I want to go back to January of 07. We talked about the negative gamma effect. That was the first time I'd really ever observed one. It's a very similar dynamic in the sense that oil was trading at $77 a barrel in July and August of 06. And by January of 07, it was at 52. The reason I point that is, one, you do see big sell-offs like this during the midst of a super cycle um, environment. And then, two, that you know, given the underlying fundamentals were not that weak in that time period, and it was financially driven, that you can recover from it. But let's talk about how it recovered. What was the setup in 07? It was very similar today. You had a strong, resurgent China, and you had a U.S. that was worried about a recession after 450 basis points of rate hikes. The system slowed. The high interest rates created fractures in the regional banking system, the Fed ultimately ended up cutting. What happened to oil prices? They went straight up. They went from 52 all the way to 147 by July of 2008. And there's a really important lesson from this. By the way, I'm not forecasting we're going to 147 or anything, but I do want to emphasize that it is a similar dynamic in the sense that commodities get their fundamentals from China and their liquidity from the United States. Let me just say it again. The fundamentals come from China and the liquidity comes from the U.S. Fed. And what you had happening in 07 was a slowing U.S. allowed the Fed to become more dovish, which in turn allowed liquidity to rise, which at the same time, China's demand began to surge, creating tight markets that that liquidity was able to feed. And what do we have going on right now? We have a slowing U.S., a Fed that yesterday became you know, somewhat more dovish. And we even had liquidity injections the week before. So no way you could have the same dynamic of a rally to 147. Why? Because the inflationary backdrop is very different today than what it was in 2007, which means that every time things started to move to the upside this time around, the Fed will probably have to deal with it which means that you can't get that same type of a rally. But the reason why I bring this up is, you know, in the last several days, the environment has shifted. It has become more dovish than what it was several weeks ago because of this crisis. But I want to also emphasize it's not that negative for oil. 
In fact, everybody was so worried about a U.S. recession late last year. History shows you the most optimal conditions for commodities is a slowing U.S. with a dovish bed and a really strong China that provides the fundamentals. So I think it's, you know, it's a very different environment in answering this question than what it was two to three weeks ago. I would think the, the main point is you now have less of a cap on prices than what you would have had several weeks ago. Thanks, Jeff. Before we go into the super cycle discussion, can we talk about Russia? Because obviously that's another swing factor like China. How do you see that? We like to argue you know, the biggest event in commodity markets last year was not Russia. It was China. And if anything, risk around Russia have now shifted to the other side that we get more supply out of Russia than previously expected. Our base case still remains the same. You know, we see it dropping 600,000 barrels per day between now and third quarter, and most indications are there. We will say there's a pretty significant disappointment in expectations. I don't want to use the word disappointment. Expectations were not met in terms of the declines that were expected on the crude side. One of the key reasons for that is Russia was able to source scrap ships. It was able to source Chinese insurance and redirect crude oil to other parts of the world. And the trick was get a scrapped VLCC, get Chinese insurance, send it to India, turn the into refined products and send those refined products back to places like Europe and the U.S., However, that trick can't be done with products. It starts to become far more complicated and frictions begin to amount on both the refining system and clean tanker shipping, which is why you know, we expect it to continue to drop down you know, somewhere around 600. And that's pretty consistent with the announced reductions that we believe are involuntary, but were announced by Russia, 500,000 barrels per day. So yeah, it'll have an impact, but nothing like what expectations were a year ago. Now let's move to super cycles. You've talked up the fact we are in a commodity super cycle. While some commentators suggest we aren't quite there yet, maybe because of recessions or other factors. How do you define a super cycle? And how is any transition a key part of that theory? Well, I love this question. And my thinking on it develops year after year. And my latest thinking, and you can see it by just plotting metals prices versus global capex cycles going back to the 60s and what i mean by that is you take global capex divided by global gdp so it's a share of gdp that is capex and you look at it over time and you see the 70s super cycle was a capex cycle and you see the 2000s cycle was it also a capex cycle so a commodity super cycle is nothing other than a capex cycle and it makes sense because you're putting money to work in the real world, drilling for oil, building mines. And in the case of the 2000s, you were building cities. So you needed that investment to be able to grow the physical capacity of the economy. And I get a question that won't higher interest rates kill off the CapEx cycle? No, the higher interest rates are telling you it's time to put money into the real world and take it out of the financial world. And you can think about what do higher interest rates do? They kill off the profitability of owning technology, growth companies, you know, the equity markets, the FANGs, crypto. Think about this way. When interest rates are zero, you want to own long duration assets, things like technology companies, clean hydrogen, green tech, 
crypto, all of those things that don't give you profits today, but something down the road. And when interest rates rise, it's telling you, you got to create more of the stuff that can provide capacity today. And all that stuff that provides capacity today is the old economy. It's oil, gas, metals, mining, food, and everything in the commodity sector. What the higher interest rates are telling you to do is put money into short duration assets. And that's stuff that's in the ground. So when you look at the 70s, what it was, was a CapEx boom. It was build out of energy production systems. That's when we built the North Sea, the Alaska North Slope, the Gulf of Mexico, Brazil, all that was built back during the 1970s, the metals and mining in places like Latin America. But I also want to talk about what are those periods between the commodity super cycles? Those are big equity boom periods. You had the nifty 50 in the 60s, you had the dot-com boom in the 90s, and then you had the fame boom in the 2010s. What do they all have in common? Low and stable inflation and low interest rates. And that was generated by the excess commodity production from the previous cycle. And so all we're witnessing here is we had a demand. And by the way, each ended with a demand shock. What was the demand shock in 68? It was LBJ's Great Society, very similar to Biden's American Recovery Act that occurred in 2021. But the demand shock in 2002 was China's admission to the WTO. But what those demand shocks did is they lowered inventories and then ran spare capacity down, which then made it very clear we need to invest again. That's my definition of a commodity super cycle is a capex cycle. But let's go to the other question. How important is energy transition? It's critical to this. You know, I like to point out, we're going to change the way we do transportation, manufacturing, heat and cool ourselves, that we're going to change the way we've been doing this for the past 250 years. That's huge. You know, we estimate to do that. The amount of CapEx is going to be required this decade is worth what China spent in the 2000s, and it'll be two Chinas the following decade. And a lot of that is going to be fueled by like the IRA Act in the United States. You have the Repower EU here in Europe, and China has got it in its five-year plan. So it's going to happen, and it's going to create a lot of demand for raw materials. And you know, there's the question about, oh, isn't this going to be killing off oil demand in the future? Yes, but it's not going to do that at least for another three to five years. And we don't see declines in outright oil demand. So we see it hit the growth rates by 2027, but we don't see it have big substantial declines in actual levels of demand until the early 2030s. So in the meantime, you still need to invest in oil and oil is part of the broader super cycle. Why may we still stay in a super cycle, even if the world tips into a recession or a sharp economic downturn? How much is a super cycle about supply as well as demand? Well, again, let's go back to the definition. It's a capex cycle. And demand is cyclical. It's not structural. And a capex cycle or an investment in supply is structural. And in the 70s, we saw several significant downturns, one in 70, 71, another one in 73, 74, and then another in 80, 81. And similarly, in the 2000s, you had a downturn, a weakness in you know late 06, early 07, similar today, a big rate hike. And you had the global financial crisis, the GFC in 08, 09. But as soon as you came out of it and demand recovered, you know the market rebounded until finally the CapEx solved the investment problem, 
which was around 2013, 2014. Now, going back to the situation in the current environment, the weakness is coming from Chinese demand. I mean, it was a global demand shock for oil. It was 2% of global demand that was lost out of China in the fourth quarter of last year. So the weakness now is cyclical demand related, but it doesn't mean that the super cycle fundamentals on supply have gone away. How have energy security concerns changed the oil outlook? Is this another leg of the super cycle now? The need to have greater energy buffers, especially after the strategic petroleum reserves were used almost as a market management tool as much as an energy security tool. Would you agree with that? It definitely has changed the investment profile for oil and gas. You can already see it in the willingness of some of the companies like BP, you know, that took up some of their petroleum investment in their recent quarterly announcement. Now, when we think about this more broadly, you know, we think about the energy transition. What we want is reliable, affordable, and clean energy. And it has to come from a bunch of different sources. I like to point out the power price doesn't know whether it was created from clean or dirty sources. And I think the key point here as we go through the transition is focusing on maximizing energy but minimizing emissions in doing that in such a way that focuses on reliability, which was clearly missed in Europe over the course of the last couple of years, affordability, and it being clean. And oil and gas are definitely part of that mix until you complete the transition, because let's remember, oil and gas are far cleaner burning fuels than wood or coal. And with the underinvestment in oil and gas over the course of the last years, we've seen lower income households as well as lower income countries shifting towards wood and coal. I like to point out wood emits five times that of coal and coal emits two times that of gas. So I think the investment in oil and gas and oil more broadly is a critical part of this energy transition and it needs to be managed in that way. So what the energy security issues that were brought to the forefront over the last year or so did is it just shifted the realization that this is a transition. It's not a divestment in oil. On that note, could high oil prices and energy security shift the narrative on capex? Could we see a big return to investment in oil and gas? Is this a case only for short cycle investment like shale? Or could we see even long cycle investment make a comeback? Well, we definitely think you're going to see the investment make a comeback. Um, I'm going to the short cycle versus long cycle question in a minute. But I want to take a step back and ask, is it abnormal to see the investment not flowing this early in a super cycle? The answer is yes. If we look at the last two super cycles, they were 12 years. The first three years were periods where prices were high to create a track record in the industry to get investors willing to accept that there's an opportunity here. Because you ask most investors, particularly after the second half of last year, is there an opportunity in this space? They're going to say absolutely not. So they need to see a rolling three-year return higher than that of other alternatives before they're going to put money to work. And that's exactly what you saw in the 2000s. The super cycle began in January of 2002 with China's admission to the WTO. And it wasn't until 05 that we saw capital really beginning to flow. And by the way, that also corresponds to the period in which you saw the 
three-year trailing average of the returns in commodities being greater than that of the NASDAQ on a risk-adjusted basis, meaning you take the sharp ratio of commodities versus the NASDAQ, that's when the two crossed. And so that you had better returns in commodities than you did in tech, or old economy looked better than new economy. And I think you got to get to that same point here. We were really close to those two kissing towards the end of last year, but with the pullback in commodities and the recent rally in equities, it's a very difficult proposition to make. However, when you think about the three-year anniversary, when this super cycle began, you know, October 2020, with the huge stimulus and taking effect in the Western world, that means you got pretty much till the end of this year for that three-year rule to apply. But just quickly on that, so you can think about how the, we think about these investment cycles. So it's three years to get a track record, then years four through six, the capital flows. But once it flows, it creates cost inflation. You think about from 05 through 08, massive cost inflation in the sector. And then years 7 through 12, you de-bottleneck the system. And that's what happened in the 70s, and that's what happened in the 2000s. And we think you know there's a high probability it happens here. And when we think about the green capex, particularly in the metals side, it really begins in earnest here towards the end of this year in 2024. And all sectors, whether if it's oil, gas, agriculture will be competing for resources against a lot of that green capex that's going to go into the transition. So we're confident you're going to get the investment. Quickly on your question about short cycle, long cycle. Now, we took the view that because we know energy transition is likely to happen, the interest in long cycle capex is going to be diminished. And the areas with short cycle capex are U.S., Russia, and Middle East. Those are the three areas with short cycle oil projects that can be invested in. Russia is now off limits, so you just lost one of the engines of growth. U.S. seems to be sputtering with you know recent data on the geology, and you know our growth for this year is 500,000 barrels a day, which is not that significant given current prices, which really leaves that the only game in town is the Middle East and OPEC, and that's where your short cycle is, which means maybe we do have to revisit some of these long cycle projects, and this may take longer than what we thought, but Right now, we think it's going to be the Middle East and, to a lesser extent, the U.S. driving the growth going forward. If I can just add quickly on that note as well, you talk about cost inflation as being a big issue. The Fed's just trying to wrestle that down with higher interest rates. Are you then saying that potentially we get over one inflationary cycle and we're trying to wrestle with another one quickly afterwards? Well, when you look at these commodity super cycles, they're typically characterized as a sequence of price spikes with each high higher than the last and each low higher than the previous low. You know, you even look at inflation, look at commodities in the 70s or even in the 2000s. That's the way they traded. It wasn't just a nice, steady, stable, low vol trend upward. It was spike after spike. And the way we like to think about it is the system runs out of capacity. Prices spike, bring demand and supply back in line with one another. Then you don't need the high prices anymore until the system tries to grow again, and then you price a spike. So you take like oil in the 2000s. You had a spike in 02, another one in late 03, 04, another one in 5, 6, and then it collapsed, and then another one in 7 and 8, it collapsed, and then another one in 10 and 11, and then it flatlined in 13, 14, and then it fell off a cliff. But that's the kind of dynamic here. 
I'm not the macroeconomist. I don't want to comment on the inflationary pressures, but what do these periods have in common in the 2000s and in the 70s was volatile inflation. So you could argue, you know, it's the same physical constraints, just means inflation is going to be volatile. In fact, that is the operative word here. It's the 60s, 90s, and 2010s are characterized by low and stable inflation. The 70s, 2000s, and the current period are characterized by unstable inflation. Not the level, but the instability of it. And that's what creates the shift in investment patterns. So let's wrap things up a little bit, Jeff. We've had COVID, any transition, and now Russia up in the oil markets. Where do you see what we've called the revenge of the old economy? You almost alluded to it a bit earlier when you were talking about some of the CapEx cycle. How do you see it, some of those themes playing out? Well, we have done nothing to solve the problem. So it's just getting going. It's in the first innings. And let me just review what do we mean by the revenge of the old economy. We coined the term in 2002, February, when the new economy in that time, it was a dot-com world, was booming and commodities were in the doldrums. And the returns in commodities were miserable. We weren't seeing adequate investment to grow the supply base. Very similar dynamic that we've been seeing over the last 10 years in the current cycle, where your poor returns in the old economy cause capital to be redirected to the new economy, choking off the investment that would have been otherwise used to grow the supply base, creating the problems we see today. And when we look at that transition, meaning capital moving away from the new economy and into the old economy, it's not happening on a financial side, despite the fact that it's happening on the physical side. You know, I have to just make this point. You know, in third quarter of last year, Exxon printed $20 billion of free cash flow. In contrast, Microsoft, the second largest company in the world at the time, only printed $17 billion of free cash flow. However, you look at their equity valuations. At the time, Microsoft was roughly a $2 trillion company, and Exxon is a $450 billion company. You know, another way to say it is, you know, Microsoft is trading four times higher than Exxon, which means the financial capital has not accepted the revenge of the old economy and given capital to the old economy. And we think that's going to be a process that's likely to play out over the next several years. But I can give you example after example of the old economy coming back and taking revenge on the new economy. You know, you look at traditional U.S. auto manufacturers versus Tesla, Beyond Meats versus the standard meat companies. You know, you look at the old economy, you know, Walmart versus Amazon. It's making its comeback because the old economy of bricks and mortars is what's underinvested here. And till we see, you know, that what, the, again, I'll go back to the point, higher interest rates are telling you, Put capital to work in the real economy, not in the financial economy. You can think about new economy being financial economy, tech and things of that nature, and old economy as being the physical world. And so where are we in that process? We're just beginning. I'd say we're in the second inning. Now, periods can take a long time in which we need to redeploy capital. You throw energy transition on top of that. We're talking the biggest CapEx cycle the world's ever has likely gone through. So, you know, it's going to be interesting time as we go in here. But I think the main message is you haven't missed it. If I can just ask one final question, and that relates back to investment in oil. We've heard a lot of messaging around the difficulty 
in financing oil projects. And you mentioned earlier about where we see these growth areas, where Middle East and the NOCs, where there's likely don't have that problem. But do you see a world in which in the next few years, when and if these energy security zones ramp up, this lack of investment in enough energy in the market, is there a possibility that the shift back towards getting the financing in oil does become easier at some point? Or is that already closed? You're assuming they're not getting the financing because of ESG concerns. There's three issues that why they're not getting financing. One is a history of very bad returns. Let's not forget that the US E&P sector destroyed 54 cents on every dollar it was given over the last decade. That's imprinted on many investors' minds and one of the key reasons they're unwilling to provide them with the capital. That's got to change as well. The second is the volatility. Just look at the volatility witnessed over the last 12 to 18 months in this market. There's lots of other investments out there in the world that don't have the same type of volatilities. You have to control for that level of volatility and uncertainty in these markets that also discourages investors. And then number three on that list, I would put the ESG concerns. Now, in Europe, ESG may sit above the bad returns, but in the US, I'd say the bad returns sit above ESG. All three are important factors, but I think first and foremost, the sector has to prove it can generate returns before you can even have the ESG discussion. Thanks very much, Jeff. Much appreciate your thoughts today. Thanks for having me. It's enjoyable. Thanks again, Jeff. And thanks for listening to the PE Live podcast series, Energy Oracles. Don't forget to subscribe and to check out Petroleum Economist, our sister publications, Hydrogen Economist and Carbon Economist, and our GEI Analytics offerings.